How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 203. I was so ready that time. For what? No, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm like, like staring you down, ready for you to jump in. Usually I'm drinking water, I'm readjusting my chair. Yeah. But you're ready to go. You, this time I'm like, lot to talk about. As soon as your mouth opens, let's, my, let's, my, just, my, let's just let's just go. I'm not gonna finish that sentence. How, no. are, you, how are you, Zeke? I'm good. I'm good. Um, already struggling to find trivia. <laughs> oh no, um, no, I've got stuff here. Um, yeah, no, I'm good. I've caught decent amount of movies. Got a lovely, not to jump ahead to career updates, but got the uh, the green light email to graduate. So oh, well I'll done! Be graduating sixteenth, which is awesome. On track. Yeah, I was I was uncharacteristically at the park when I got my undergrad uh, email that I got my undergrad. Yeah, that was that is pretty uncharacteristic. <laughs> Why am I not at my desk? Yeah, typing away nerdy stuff. I know. I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it. It's an expensive time of year. So oh my god. Yeah. Hundred dollars for regalia is a bit of a bit of a wince. Jesus, yeah, no, not j- just to rent. Yeah. Oh, Jesus Christ. That's how much it cost when we did Murdoch. No, I know. Yeah, well I, well, I mean, I definitely rented it. But I got we got to keep the bag, didn't we? I still got the big red Murdoch bag because they just didn't care about that for some mm. reason. So now I have my suit jacket in there constantly. It's perfect for it. True. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah well, no. Um, I'm good, Jake, to answer your question. Oh, that's, yeah. that's excellent. I'm, I'm feeling you right now. I've been helping. My brother's moving out, Zeke. Yes. He's moving out, and I've been... It's a thirty-minute drive between this house and and his new house, so it's a lot of moving stuff around and making beds, <laughs> <laughs> having pe- been under beds that are getting drilled into currently. That was Wild, great. <laughs> Wild. fun, fun time. And then yeah, the Christmas shopping. Let's not let's not get into that. But well, your your presents in the mail. Oh, that's very exciting. So it's, it's just in the the mail. Yeah, it's in someone's <laughs> mailbox right now. And then the mailman goes and takes it out and then okay. and then walks to Perth, right? That's how it works? Yeah, that's how it works. Yeah, okay. I seem to remember that's how it works. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think I have seven outstanding deliveries, which is unheard of for me, Zeke. I had to go to the store and just buy things off the shelf, but that's not, that's just an impossibility this year. But that's not why you're here, people. You're here to for us to talk about movies and TV shows. Oh, I guess and so. speaking of movies and TV shows, Jake, I pushed my limit. <laughs> do you have any trivia? I do. On the film of the week, bones the film of the week, and all bones and all, all and bones. Mm. I will say, was the first time I could effectively stand up in the theater and point and scream. He said it. He said it. He said the title of the film because we were alone, Zeke. Was so I wasn't. Super cool. Just, when other people are being annoying, I can yell at them. Yeah. But otherwise, I can't be the annoying one. Yeah, this is, uh, like you said uh, prior to the show, this is not making its its budget back. So we went to an empty empty theatre. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I chalked that up to 9 p.m. Sunday session. Um, mm-hmm. But you are right. It is this, I don't think the film has made its money. The film hasn't made its money back yet. And I don't, there's not a whole lot of promotion for it. I've obviously heard of the film prior. We saw a trailer ahead of. I think Halloween ends, which is really ironic because the director of that film is actually also an actor in this film, David Gordon Green. That's not my trivia, though. That's a free one for you. My trivia, in terms of the casting, is someone who actually didn't appear in the film. I noticed this, Zeke. I looked up the cast of the film, and one of the people who came up was Francesca Scorsese. I was like, what? Turns out, she was meant to be in the main cast and just wasn't in the final edit of the film. Wow. Which is mind-blowing, because it literally says, a part of the main cast. 
But I guess, I mean, a lot of the cast in this film sort of show up for a scene or two and then disappear. And, yeah. So may, it might have just been one of those scenarios. What about you, Zeke? What's your fun trivia fact? Well, there's a few little interesting ones, but we'll talk a little bit about the production. Mm. Um, and notably, the film crew were actually burglarized. So, oh, I did, I did um, hear about this, Which I yes. find this quite interesting. The Cincinnati City Council, uh, with the mayor's support, ultimately provided $50,000 in security costs for this. But mm. you don't hear about sets getting robbed or cast getting robbed no there's two examples that come to my head one of them is is breaking bad one of brian cranston's scripts was stolen in like when they were shooting the second to last episode they're up in the hills they're putting fake snow in someone broke into his car and grabbed an ipad or a laptop with one of the last scripts on it and it never leaked it never mm. as far as i know it never leaked but that's one story Another one, it's not my place to say, Z, but I know of a local production where they were almost robbed of all of their camera gear. Just some crazy person snuck in and they ended up stealing someone's wallet. Was it in a particular area? Was it, it was a, a dodgy part of Frio. Mm. But again, that is not my story to tell, but... but um, Truly I think, wild. Yeah, I know. It was one of those cases where luckily this person didn't realise how expensive all the camera gear was. They went straight for the wallet. <laughs> Which might have actually been a really good thing. Well, it's interesting because <laughs> obviously in this film it does feature a certain drifting culture and, and actually mm. quite a few acts of thievery. That is true. Um, There's a lot of uh, crimes committed in this film in general. Yeah, with very little <laughs> punishment for them, but... Um, yeah, well, obviously we'll jump into what Guadagnino serves up in the second half of the show. Sure. But Jake, obviously being a 2022 release, I know mm. for a fact it's not on the poster behind me. <laughs> no, for a fact. It's true. <laughs> it is true. I just like your wording there. <laughs> but Jake, would, would this be on your 1100 films to watch? I'd say no. I think this film, and we were sort of joking about it in our empty screening the film, this film is an amalgamation of a lot of other films and a lot of other stories. It's, of course, based on a novel, so it's not an original story necessarily. But I figure films like we talked about Easy Rider, Let the Right One In. I mean, there's a little bit of Into the Wild as well in this film, mm-hmm. which I mean, you would definitely see. I can agree with that one. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all films that I would rather see on my list than this film. For I'd say there are aspects of even things like Twilight and... Oh, oh yeah, well, <laughs> but it's yeah. um, obviously you know we can jump dive into that in the second part. Of the sure. I'm um, guess. What about you? No, no, no. This is uh, well, we can discuss it in the second half of the show. Exactly. Um, we'll get into it. But Jake, yes. I have to ask: Have you caught anything in the last week? <laughs> very coy for asking me that. See, <laughs> no, I've watched very, very little in this last week. Well, it's a busy time of year. It is a very busy time of year. And um, I think, put all your hopes and dreams, oh, watch some stuff the Monday that we're going to record. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like, that. that's something I need to get better at in general, is I keep backloading my viewing. Yeah. Or specifically viewing for the podcast. It's obviously like, you know, like uh, when I saw Glass Onion a couple of weeks, I was going to see that regardless of when it came out. You know, if it was a Thursday, Friday, Tuesday, whenever, I was going to mm. watch it. But most of my viewing that I do, like, oh, it'll be good to talk about this on the podcast, I leave it to, like, Sunday, Monday, which is a bad idea. Because well, if something comes up, then you can't watch it. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, and look, it, it, it does... It's just a busy time of year. Yeah. It's a busy time of year. I think it's always good to... You know, you, you said you're on 89, all right, for the uh, year. 93 films 93. I've seen this year. I'll so crack 100 before and you I think year. cracking 100's sort of... 
admirable. An, ex- an, an expectation, <laughs> I think. We should always try and hit one every three or so days would be yeah. one new film, too, especially. But um, It's hard, though. There's so much going on. Yeah. There. yeah. Well, I only did 109 last year, and I've only just really just surpassed that in the last week. So. Sure, yeah. Um, I mean, without, think about it this way. Without this podcast, we would probably be like... I reckon I would be down to, like, 30 films this year. I'd say so. I'm I think, not even joking about I think the, that. the podcast really helps, especially when it's normally... Uh, of the 52 you do in a year you probably have at least 40 of them you've never seen before maybe 45 going yeah, into yeah. them yeah off the top of my head I, that's probably an accurate number yeah so um, I've caught seven films in the last <laughs> week two, good for you in, uh, in obviously including the film of the week and a good mix I feel like it's almost like a, a couple of them are tidying up or catching up with you because you've actually caught quite a few there's a couple them. you've seen that I, I watched very recently yeah, we so, can even start with those if you uh, want. Well, I'll start with one of the ones that I'm not going to dive into too much. It's okay. a Russell Crowe directed Australian film that got dropped on Stan in the last week or so called Poker Face. Um, oh, I've heard as oh, this was a film. This was a film. Oh, for some reason I thought it was a. So show. It was not a good film. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, it's got a pretty big Australian cast. You know, notable ones are obviously Russell Crowe himself and Liam Hemsworth and. Um, Sorry, I mean, it's in the title, kind of what type of film it's based around is gambling sure. and, and gambling addicts. It's exposition central. It pretty much does every cliche thing under the sun and actually has very little to do with playing poker, which mm. I always find poker-driven titles that don't actually deliver on that side are very misleading and, and often sure. very frustrating. Um, yeah, you want that sort of sportsman energy, yeah. high stakes mind game sort of thing very few character arcs it sort of got it takes a switch and turns into sort of a a taboo dinner sort of drama film Mm. where all of the characters have something to hide and then it gets revealed but um doesn't they'd use things like literally a truth potion to get that out rather than actual witty (laughs) manipulating dialogue literally like truth it's like the, the truth chemical what's it called the the lasso of truth i was gonna call it basically the whip of truth so any, not, any whip can give you the truth seek if you if you use it hard enough. It's pretty janky. In fact, it's actually very amateurish. If it if it didn't have people that had been nominated for you know highly acclaimed actoral awards, and this was produced by a twenty year old, mm. you, you wouldn't see much difference. That's right. the level of writing it, we're dealing with. Okay. It's really not um, interesting or compelling at all. Um, That's a shame. However, in contrast to that, and I, I have caught, um, I'll, I'll jump back and forth, but mm-hmm. um, we'll do the two that you have seen. Okay. Um, that I, well, three I've seen that have tied it up. So I did catch Quentin Tarantino's Death Proof. Hey. Um, not, I don't hate it. Uh, oh. I don't hate it. <laughs> okay. can see why people think it's the weakest of his films. I haven't seen the Kill Bills yet, but. Um, that's the last of them I need to there's, see. There's no way you think Kill Bill is worse than Death Proof. Yeah. That so, being said, I actually think I might like Death Proof more than Kill Bill. Yeah, I like Kill Bill. Personal I, I like. Sorry, I like Death Proof. I I, I really like the the final act. Um, with the ending the, is absolutely brilliant. Yeah. The last couple of shots. Um, I think Kurt it's Russell is such a good like depiction of toxic masculinity. Right. And gets some seriously great comeuppance at the end. <laughs> um, well, he, pl- he plays such a great, and it's been a few years since I've seen it, but I, m- I remember him playing such a great, like, y- you know, charismatic, 
horror villain just yeah. without like you know the horror the the monster mask if you will like he's he's playing a human but without very few with, with very few human traits he's a yeah. monster he's a horrible person yeah and he's but he's fantastic to watch on screen it's definitely got that uh, tarantino uniqueness the the idea of making a stunt car a, a weapon like mm. and how they utilize that weapon um it's got like like you know it obviously is an ode to the sort of slasher monster b movies of of the 1970s and 80s yeah. um and that does that pretty well i just obviously it's a much looser doesn't have as clear a plot as maybe some of the other films that he's done and, sure it's it's um, definitely more of a hangout film you're, you're pretty much getting two like kind of short films yeah almost like an anthology with two different stories where one sort of has a much more tragic ending and the other has a much more hilarious ending for lack of a better word absolutely um i i freaking loved it i just love the performance i love zoe bell like getting to be herself and playing that role and mm. kicking ass and the all her stunts were like completely real and i just found it so fun and so enticing and i loved all the hangout stuff i didn't care that the, you know the, there's barely a plot in it mm-hmm. um i just loved hanging out with these characters which is what any great tarantino film does but uh, i'm glad you caught it though yeah i love it um, moving into uh, another film that you know ties in with uh, a film that we covered a couple of weeks ago, The mm. Stranger. I did uh, actually catch um, Thomas M. Wright's Acute Misfortune. Nice. Um, yeah, I had a real Stan-orientated week. Um, <laughs> a lot of good stuff on Stan. Um, but yeah, I probably enjoy. I've really torn between which one I enjoyed more. Interesting. And I'm probably leaning the other way. I think I prefer The Stranger over Interesting. Acute Misfortune. I do really like Acute Misfortune. I think it, like you said, it touches on very similar themes. Um, yeah, in terms of that, the male-dominated relationship between these two guys, um, there's that sort of essence of fear. But I also love the, the tortured artist mm. subversion and it is sort of it's obviously based on a true story much like The Stranger is but I loved it It didn't kind of hit those those tropes if you were about the tortured artist it felt like a much more lived in character and I say character he's a real person but mm-hmm. I, I just thought it was a there was a bit more to chew on than The Stranger I kind of walked away from The Stranger we did our podcast and I frankly have never really thought about that film again but for acute misfortune, I can I can't say the same. I actually think there was a lot more to think about and ponder on in that mm. film. Definitely has a, a nit ram feeling. Oh my uh, god, yes, um, a thousand percent. Uh, and that sort of exploration into a, a tortured mindset and tonally, I think those films are in the same very sort of company. very similar. Um, yeah, you could do- totally do a double screening with with acute misfortune and nit ram, and you wouldn't miss a beat. You mm. would think it's the same director. Yeah, it is, yeah. Which yeah. goes to show, clearly, um, this style, that this, this uncomfortable right. uh, cinema that seems that this, this <laughs> is a shift. And I think, you know, a lot of that has to do with what the Babadook took on. And okay. um, I think maybe the shift happened there. Maybe it happened even earlier with um, sort of what uh, came out of Animal Kingdom, that side of that hyper-realism and uncomfortability. Yeah, um, I think... I've, I I like that comparison a lot. I was thinking the same thing, but I think mean, these films have just a, a tinge more of that ethereal, unsettling effect mm. that um, I think Animal Kingdom, it plays it a little more straight and a little more in your face 
but I can see I can see how one evolves into the other. So I I think it's a good comparison. Yeah. Um. The other film I caught, which I really did like, was a uh, fire and a fire of love. Yes. Um, the and I've only sat on a three and a half, and probably will bump it to a four because I do think it deserves it. It's, did I give it a four? I think you did. Yeah. Hell yeah. Um. It's great. I probably will bump it because it's obviously it's a fantastic documentary that's come out. I think. It's really annoying that it's got, and I, this is a critique of um, particularly Disney Plus. Um, okay. Because it's on Disney Plus, and it's got the National Geographic stamp on its thumbnail. Right now, I'm not saying National Geographic, who probably did fund the project and stuff, and they do. You can easily in the opening sprawl, but I don't like that it's lumped in with the same sort of nature documentaries that come with like some of the other sort of like the planet earth ones right. like Was i feel like when a, yeah you they s- all come from the same you know what i mean but like you when you see the national geographic sort of stamp on something i feel like your preconceived notion is oh it's a nature documentary which i don't see fire of love as a nature documentary it has I mean, a, a big part of it is the nature aspect but the storytelling is very different yes yeah. yeah we're not just watching volcanoes for 90 minutes um, we're watching the development of a relationship, yeah. And honestly, the, the like to tie into things like the the freedom of of exploring the unknown and 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 being in the face of danger. I mean, the the, the part when the two the couple um, the the Banth, the Ganths. Yeah. It's like cramps or something. Let me double check for you. Double check it. It's been a couple of weeks since I've seen it. I actually did give it a three and a half. I might bump it to four. Craft, a craft, a craft couple. A craft couple. Where they're on the... Carter they're on the precipice. They're on the precipice of a volcano and they're dancing. <laughs> like, it's sort of like one of those things where it's... it's For me... I bumped it I don't like then. that it's sort of like... You click on National Geographic and most of the National Geographic ones are very just... A retelling of a historical event or their um their nature documentaries and and i think the branding puts it in that category whereas it should be a documentary that sits on its own that just could easily sit in or could be spotted by the national geographic but i just think it it's not given that recognition it probably should be as a standalone uh, exploring of a relationship you know and and sort of talking it's definitely more biographical than it is nature in terms right. of but is it is that a funding body or a production company or is that just a genre because you're sort Geographic. of you're sort of implying that it's just like the genre underneath it's like calling a That's comedy a, a drama yeah when i i don't think they're going to put that name in there unless there is a, a funding body that has contributed yeah, to the film potentially and the fact that like this film had a theatrical run before it went to disney plus so i think i just i feel like that's kind of almost irrelevant so I get your. It, it has nothing to do with the actual film itself. Mm. I know what you're saying. It's more the promotion and how yeah, it's shown it's, to it's, people. It's yeah. It how like some people wouldn't be compelled to watch it because they see that because they they'll misinterpret what type of film it is. I reckon before even clicking on it. Right. Um. And I I the only reason I watched it was because you read the logline was sure. like that's really cool and then you went and watched it and we're like that's really cool so it's like okay I now know what it's kind of about so I can go and watch it. But if I'm just going through on Disney Plus and it's just been lumped in with, like, unless I'm feeling like a a nature documentary, which, to be honest, I don't watch many nature documentaries. Just pure, like, this is about this animal or this um, feat. And to be honest, it it, it definitely, 
what I liked about the documentary is basically it was a the real life version of of some of the films I've watched. Like uh, I talked about earlier, the animated film, The Summit of the Gods. Mm-hmm which I talked about a little bit a month or two ago, and that's sort of talking about the why do you put yourself in harm's way and climb mountains and stuff. Yeah. Well, because you can't stop. It's the, uh, the euphoria they feel from not even conquering nature, but really being immersed in these these huge feats of, of natural beauty and mm. chaos. And, um, but just like the research and the documentation of it and like spreading that information and... Again, how it actually led to their information informed government bodies on evacuation notices mm-hmm. and actually ended up potentially saving people, even though there were, there were tens of thousands of people that lost their lives in some of these volcanoes. But then you're right, at the center of it's that love story. It's a fantastic doco. And, and even, I remember when I talked about it a couple of weeks ago, it was um, you had, oh my God, how am I forgetting? Uh, Miranda July, who did the narration of it, mm. um, which is just a great voice so it's almost like one sentence away from just breaking down and crying that's yeah. what she sounds like <laughs> yeah it took me a while but, to figure out it was marina i thought it was, oh, it took Winona, me ages, I thought, I thought yeah. it was winona Ryder for a second oh i was like right. winona Ryder. Like, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> probably she's got the same sort of like broken voice too so she yeah yeah yeah, delivered yeah. It. um but i i loved how that all kind of came together to you know t- tie all these themes but then even some of the questions she poses in terms of are they filmmakers or are they you know explorers geologists and it's like they themselves say they're not filmmakers but then the film contradicts that by cutting to these wide beautiful shots where they've composed these shots to tell a story so mm. are they not filmmakers there's a lot of great stuff just explored in in fire of love so i'm glad yeah. you watched it absolutely recommend it to everyone yeah it's really it's really solid um the other films i caught which are really interesting. I can I can kind of lump them together in a nice uh, okay. Hollywood double. Um, so we'll start with uh, <laughs> memory. So to, to kind of build on, is that black enough for you? And then earlier in the year, I watched Spielberg. Oh, yeah. This is another film-related documentary that yeah. it basically You're in a explores. bit of a role here. Yeah, which just explores the the history, the origins, and and the creative minds behind the creation of the 1979 film Alien. And mm. um, you know, we've talked about Alien on the show. I, th- I think it's a it's a an epitome of of horror sci-fi cinema mm. it really bookmarks the golden age of uh, one of the golden decades of cinema with you know being 79 and and being at the end of things like jaws and and um star wars, star wars. Yeah. so we see the emergence of, of lucas and spielberg in this uh, we see francis ford coppola who's just at the same time producing apocalypse now in mm. 79 so Alien really hallmarked, you know, it's the start of Ridley Scott's career, but it's, you know, it's it sort of explores the, the origins of the script and and sort of uh, the origins of, of things like the, the xenomorph, the face huggers, the, the you know, we get great um, pieces to camera from an array of different um, people that worked on the films, yeah. uh, like associate producers and line producers, and really interesting when you sort of see the years that built up to alien and why it's so important and then the the mythos the mythos and, and mythology behind um the creation of things like the xenomorph and yeah. particularly um it doesn't just explore what ridley scott did with the script that was actually produced by dan o'bannon who was a sort of a science fiction writer turned screenwriter and and um hr giga who passed away i think only a year ago oh, okay. or a year or two ago um, and sort of his um, 
influences and and obviously you know explores like the the sexualized nature of the the film and and how there's so many oh, different yeah. um analogs in there about um <laughs> sort of that side which to be honest it, it's a it, it just goes to show how multifaceted that film is and how yeah. truly remarkable it is and you know they even they the last five or six minutes they do start to talk about it's like really scott really didn't ever really hit those heights again as a creator like you know i really like blade oh. runner and yeah, um, last apparently well i thought blade runner was was really good but i would say his his number one film is probably alien i think that probably beats blade runner mm. um i mean i wouldn't refute the argument it's close yeah. um and i mean to be honest uh, you, in recent years, I mean, apart from, like, and I haven't seen Last Jewel, but I would mm. say that's the only film that has kind of been looked favourably upon by Ridley in at least the last 10 to 15 years. Yeah, I might have to go and addict. I'm just sort of blanking at the moment. I mean, House of Gucci, we don't... <laughs> we don't, we don't need to get into that. Boy, oh boy. But yeah, so is this is this purely just on the first Alien movie? Yeah. Okay. That's kind of cool. I mean, it's almost like the movies that made us show. Yeah. Um, but it kind of gets, a, I guess, a feature-length doco. So that's called Memory, The Origins of Alien. Mm-hmm. And that's on Stan. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah, and the Stan vibes. to wrap up this week, I only watched this one today, but it was actually very interesting to me. Um, as you know, I am a fan of professional wrestling. Mm. Um, and this one was called You Cannot Kill David Arquette. And to be honest, it's uh, David Arquette in the wrestling world is a is an infamous name. Is that a Patricia Arquette's brother? Yes. Oh, <laughs> I was joking. Yeah, it is. It's <laughs> That's awesome. Pretty famous family, actually. Okay. Um, but he's quite infamous because he's also most well known for playing uh, uh, the cop in the original Scream movies. Um, oh. That's sort of the, the role that he... In. He was a serious actor turned kind of goofball... Right. Um because he got and he ended up being pigeonholed but it was really interesting because they show basically at the at the end of the 90s the vanity fair sort of up and coming actors and you're seeing all these actors like Will Smith and Leonardo DiCaprio and David Arquette is in this like big mural of right. these up and coming actors and everyone goes well what happened to David Arquette well basically he got typecasted in the scream roles and then did these goofy things and he was a little bit uh, loose and he married Courtney Cox, got divorced to Courtney Cox, and it was really interesting because it's like you're basically watching this um, this actor sort of spiral, and he ends up um, going on WCW, which is at the time you know you had WWE Raw or WWF Raw versus WCW, and these two rival promotions were going um, shop for shop. But as WCW was falling apart, they then made an actor Will Arquette mm. into the world champion of the promotion which obviously <laughs> diehard wrestling fans hated yep. and just generally across the board hated because it's this actor that's coming along with all these professional wrestlers who are and just taking this coveted title with like 60 years of, of prestige and that really signified the end of WCW because right. of this actor who then as a result of doing wrestling did, didn't get any more acting gigs because no, mm. no, they weren't taking him seriously as an actor either. Jeez, it's just a ping pong of bad decisions and. <laughs> what <laughs> and happens? This documentary centers around his redemption, to because his acting career is pretty much dead and gone. Right. 
but he basically trains to become a proper wrestler and actually ah, returns okay. to wrestling. And hence the title "You Cannot Kill," because you just can't get rid of this man. Yeah, He's and to everywhere. be honest, it's very compelling. It's um, it honestly feels it gives me like Simon cl- Rex vibes from Red Rocket. Yeah, well, to be honest, it, it kind of has that vibe. <laughs> I would say it's probably something like that meets something like. Um, honestly, like a real life, the closest thing to like a real life BoJack Horseman esque <laughs> situation, where he, you know, Arquette is basically just Will Arnett, like it's just the exact same thing. But because he's got this sort of like, because Does that he, rhyme Arquette and, Arnett, uh, yeah, it's wild, <laughs> excellent. And but it's like honestly, and he's got like friends, like I said, like off, uh, you know, he's got a friend that he met. And he just decided to start becoming friends with him. And he's, like, so tortured and self-destructive. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like he really has that moment of endearing. Like, he's... And his wife just sticks by him. And he has this, this really beautiful, moving moment at the end when he has a has a match against... And in front of, like, a thousand people. And his wife comes out and, like, dresses like macho man's wife miss elizabeth and it's this really beautiful sort of uh biographical documentary about this very this this actor that could have been huge like we could have been yeah. saying will arquette but because of certain things it just didn't work out that way and it very much has that bojack horseman meets sort of what um aronofsky did with the wrestler with okay. mickey rourke um and it it honestly it's a very compelling documentary it's a fun documentary yeah. it makes you like get invested because it's sort of got that same sort of like he's still an actor and he's got a little bit of the ego and there's a little bit of drama and they like a bit of the flair yeah they're trying to flare up the documentary at times but to be honest the narrative's so compelling because like so many it's like unnecessary, and he gets yeah. beaten up like beaten <laughs> up like he get he gets like full-blown like chair he gets like those full Glow, like light sticks and he takes right. them to the point where he pierces his neck open Jesus. and has to be taken to the emergency room and you see the footage of Ugh. him bleeding out from his neck you know, I found brutal. on my phone the other day was um, a photo of like when I had my hand cut against the window and had the stitches in I was like well that's nasty yeah and it's just it really is it shows just how tough the wrestling industry is mm-hmm. for and how two way it is like it was really it was really impressive it was yeah. a great documentary but oh excellent yeah that's uh, that's all I've caught in the last oh, week just, just that just that not good enough see <laughs> yeah, do you have any uh, career updates not really no well I do I do have a fun little game I want to play but um is, is there any career I mean you got no. your email yeah it's very exciting yeah that's uh I'm pretty pretty chuffed yeah so I think to make up for my lack of viewing okay lack of career I just I'm just Apparently, I've just been sitting in my room doing nothing. Like, <laughs> <laughs> in relation to this podcast, at least. I wanted to play a game. So, of mm. course, we're coming up at the end of the year. It's now December. Everyone has their top 100 Spotify songs. Except, like, you know, the couple of random people like, I have Apple. It's like, good for you. Pat, mm-hmm. pat on the head. Who cares? <laughs> Spot- there is aspects of Spotify that is evil. I'm not going to get into that. <laughs> but I thought it would be fun to go for our top 100. I've actually written all mine in advance. You might have to do a little more searching mm. and digging Zeke but I thought it'd be fun to go through all of the songs and tracks that have made our top 100 that are in some way related to film and television that we watched over the last couple yep. of years I got a lot of tracks for example that came from films I watched uh, in 2021 okay. that have sort of stood the test of time uh, a lot of stuff on more recent ones 
I mean, we, we've got to start with, of course, we did The Last Waltz a few months ago. Yep. So I think quite a few of those tracks ended up in our playlist, respectively. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They me, were my number two band, the band. Oh, wow. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. Very nice. My, um, well, my number one was Madness, and I know they have a song, Wings of a Dove, that's, that's in my 100. That's also in 10 Things I Hate About You. Huh? But I can't claim that because I haven't seen that movie in its totality. Wow. I've seen the first half an hour seven times in high school because <laughs> they just play the first half of the movie, never finish it. And it's on my desk. I just, I've never finished it. But I know that <laughs> song is in that movie. So shout out to that. But in terms of the band, The Last Waltz, I have two tracks, Zeke. Can you guess what they are? Uh, I'll go with um, Helpless with Neil Young. Mm. and Evangeline. You are correct for Evangeline. That's in there. Banger. The other one is The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down. Also a banger. Those are pretty damn good songs. I think both of those are in mine. Oh, yeah. And then some. (laughs) I can go go down the list if you want. Uh, Another one. Uh, Well, there's there's two songs that kind of have a similar vibe. There's Twilight Time, which... That's a song that has been in my place for ages, but it also did show up in Don't Worry Darling, which mm-hmm. I thought was quite humorous. Um, no relation to why it's in my playlist. And Only You, which kind of has a similar sound. It's in American Graffiti, I'm pretty sure. Or it plays right at the end, right before the phone call with the mystery blonde girl. Mm. So I thought that was quite nice. Um, you'll like this. Gina Ina Tango from Before Midnight, which of course plays during the credits. Yeah. Which is such a perfect song for... Not just that film, but the entire trilogy. Mm. Like, it almost kind of feels like each verse in that song could apply to the, each respective film. Which I... Yeah. Yeah, which I thought was quite nice. Um, shout out to The Tide is High, because it is in the penultimate episode of Better Call Soul. That is straight up the reason it is in my top 100. There you go. <laughs> Reinvigorated it back into my life. Um, this is a life from Everything Everywhere All at Once. Not the extended version. Just the regular version. Mm. Um, several tracks from Succession. In fact, Nicholas Pratel was my number two uh, for artists in general. Wow. Which is shocking because if Cat Empire's fifth and Nicholas Pratel's second, <laughs> t- kind of tells you how far <laughs> Cat Empire's dropped off my playlist, unfortunately. That's okay. That's this a shame. Six years running now, number one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Still. There's another track. Now, Zeke, I'm pretty confident this would be in yours. Okay. This- I feel like this would have been in your top ten a year ago. I guess it went there. What a life from another round. Yeah, I don't think it made it this year. Really? From top 100? It would have definitely made top 100 last year. Yeah. Well, that's it. A lot of these are also from films that came out last year. I got a bunch of stuff from Last Night in Soho, Songs from Silla Black, A World Without Love. That was all from last year's mm. film. And it's still all on my playlist. That's Let's have a look see. to me. I'll give a shout-out to Rocket Man. That came in at, like, number one, uh, 91. So I mean that that's pretty obvious. We're rocking. Rock so is it in? Is it in the order of? It's in order of I guess replays. So okay. your most replayed song will be number one, and by the time you're getting to a hundred, you're getting to songs you may have listened to a few times throughout the year. So the, for the last waltz, the number one from that out of mind right. was actually Stage Fright. Oh, interesting. Up on Cripple Creek, and then it makes no difference. Ophelia. The Weight, Helpless, <laughs> Evangeline, <laughs> The Shape I'm In, Still Going, The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down. Nice. Jeez, that's 10. Oh, Manish Boy with Muddy Waters. Oh, my Lord. 
It's like, that's fantastic. That's, <laughs> that's just all of them. Wow. Cool. So you've had a very strong Last Waltz playlist. Yeah, so... Were there the any only, other songs in there that sort of stand out? From a movie? Something that came from a movie. For example, I have Gold. from Not from Once the Motion Picture, but from Once uh, the, the, the Musical, which, of course, I attended earlier this year. There was a Spotify recording from the musical. So um, I made my top 100. Yeah, well, I watched uh, Searching for the Sugar Man this year, which mm. led to a bit of a Rodriguez tear. Okay. So Crucify Your Mind, Sugar Man, and uh, I think I Wonder. So they're all from his first album, which is the album that made him famous from the documentary. Gotcha. Um, Very excellent. I guess, I mean, I watch like so much Lumineer stuff, which does appear in a couple of shows. I've heard Lumineer songs, but I didn't mm. listen to the Lumineers because of a, right, of gotcha. a song. Very um, similar for me, uh, the Netflix show Love, which I mean, that, that finished years ago, but there is a song during one of the episode credits from there called I'll Fight. I think from Wilco, which is now in my top 100, mm. because I re- I was like, oh, this was in, in love, and I respectively, retrospectively found the episode they played it in. So that was a bit of a similar thing for me, where it was just, I kind of recognised it from a show, but I mostly just liked the song. Yeah. My number one Cat Empire song was Sparrow. Oh, no, Sparrow that... made my top 100. And Drops of Jupiter actually finished eighth, which I thought that's kind mm. of wild, a train song. Interesting. <laughs> so, you know, Drops of Jupiter has been in like a million movies too. To be yeah. Fair. Um. Yeah. Not a lot of movie movie songs related this year. I guess. No. I just I noticed so many. I mean, because Succession filled in at least what ten. I reckon. Yeah. Tracks There's a bunch of stuff from season one and two. I think a couple of from season three. The only other ones I'll mention is Life on Mars, which of course was in the Licorice Pizza trailer. Pretty sure mm-hmm. it was in the film as well. But like that. That trailer is just phenomenal. Better than the film, I think. Uh, which might be a bit controversial. To no, because uh, it's not a bit. You're not saying it's a bad film. You're saying the trailer's incredible. Yeah, which, I mean, the trailer was like, honest, oh my God, this is like my number one film. I have to see this as soon as yeah, possible. Yeah, to, to be honest, a good trailer is very rare nowadays. Like a, mm. a trailer that secedes its film, like, you know, it's, it's pretty yeah. rare, I'd say. The other thing we have to... And I always, when I hear people say things like that, I, I just said it kind of unironically just then, but com- the trailers are commercials. Trailers are made to sell the film. No matter how good or bad a film is, a trailer is made to be as good as possible to entice an audience as possible. I mean, the disconnect comes, especially for us, because we just watch so many things and we watch a variety of different films, that most trailers feel the same nowadays. Mm-hmm. It's so formulaic. Every Marvel trailer, it's got to start with like that piano key and then like a sneak peek and an epic shot, then cut to black. You got yeah. the dramatic voice. Every or every trailer is the same. So you're right. It's so rare you get a trailer that even if it's just a little different, it it just makes all yeah, the difference. For and, sure. I, and I think Life of Mars, David Bowie really added to that trailer. And last but not least, just because it's, it's sort of the most random one, for the Justin Hurwitz first man soundtrack, Armstrong Cabin. It's just kind of nice and floaty. It's just, I, I heard it, I was like, <laughs> couldn't oh, justify this it. is kind of nice. I, I, the film's fine. Yeah. I'm surprised that Elvis made it onto either route list. Yeah. That's, I, I mean, I, If I Can we, Dream, we I was actually surprised If I Can Dream didn't show up on my Interesting. Okay. I have listened to that song quite a few times. Okay. I, I can't say after the Elvis movie, though, I sprinted out to, to listen that to was the, the only uh, the maybe the was... last song too I can't remember what the last song was but right, that was pretty right. good 
No, it's a good call. But yeah, no no Elvis in my, my playlist. Yeah. That was fun. Well, it's time for us to move into our film of the week. But Jake, what are we watching? This week in the show, Z, we're watching Bones and All. Just all the bones? All the bones. Every last one of them. But you can't spend the night? Not all night. So where'd you move here from anyway? Eastern Shore. Try that. You have to be good and gone. I can't help you anymore. I know it's not your fault. You were born this way. You ate them. I believed you had to. I don't know why. I smelt you. I didn't know I could do that. I thought I was the only one. I don't want to hurt anybody. Famous last words. Are there lots of us? I don't actually meet many others. Why did you offer to bring me along? You seem nice. I am nice. I came looking for you. I smelled you. You can smell me half a mile away. Can you do that? Not that far. I got rules. Never, never, ever ate an eater. I thought you might be hungry. For hens? No. Who lives here? Is there someone dead up there? I'm not gonna be like that. We don't have many options. Either you eat, you off yourself, or you lock yourself up in there. We're dangerous. One of us? Jake's teaching me how to smell other eaters. <laughs> but we can hurt one another just as bad. Go, 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 go. Too much. You gotta do this. We have to do it. You've been following me. And we got unfinished business. You don't think I'm a bad person. All I think is that I love you. Abandoned by her father, a young woman named Marin embarks on a thousand mile odyssey through the back roads of America where she meets Lee, a disenfranchised drifter. Mm. Was it exactly a thousand? I will um, walk one thousand miles. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we both went the proclaimers. Route. <laughs> There's no other way to go. Yeah. Well, there is one other way to go. There is one other way. What eating people? <laughs> Luca Guadagnino's follow-up film from Call Me by Your Name. Yeah, he's back with uh, Timothy Chalamet. Yeah, seems See, like a bit of an in joke. I was going to say at Army Hammer. I was going to say. <laughs> Army wasn't invited back for obvious reasons. He might no. go to method. <laughs> with this film. Everyone else who got cast in the film like, I don't want to die working on this film. Yeah. <laughs> do you, it's, do it's, you reckon Rylance was just there like, nom, nom, nom? I reckon Rylance was most into it. I reckon like Army Hammer, they had to keep him off out of the set for 10-foot pole, but I reckon Rylance, they kind of, they're like, we're just going to keep an eye on him at least. <laughs> You just never know with that performance. <laughs> yeah, I mean, considering the last time these two shared the screen together, well, Chalamet and Rylance did, mm. was in Don't Look Up, and they were playing... Well, mm. to be fair, Chalamet was actually playing a pretty similar character. He was playing a drifter. Yeah, star. yeah, a bit more fun version. Rylance was playing something completely different. God, his performance in Don't Look Up is magnificent. It's a mwah, 
French yeah, kiss. Yeah, it's probably the one funny Chef's thing. Kiss, I, should say. I, I don't have a lot I can like about. I hate. Don't look up, to be honest. Right. You know, for a lot of reasons. But <laughs> Rylance is quite funny in it. Yeah. Jonah Hill, I just the worst. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Jonah Hill. No. That's all right. Yeah. We'll talk about him later on the show, Zeke. Yes. But this film, Guadagnino's follow-up from the Peach film. <laughs> um, it's the alternative title. No. It's a... Le Peach film. That's the French version of the title. <laughs> We're talking about the had, wrong well, film. Obviously, he likes focusing on those that are ostracized. A little bit different from the societal norm. Mm-hmm. I admit, this goes in a much more extreme direction than... Being in what nineteen eighty something Roma Rome basically that's... yeah I see what what is I forgot to look it up what is the time period of this film because I know she's holding the birth certificate that says nineteen seventy but that's her mum's birth certificate isn't it no it's it's oh that's her mum's birthday yeah yeah so I think when, it's just when modern day when, like it's isn't it because there were some old ass TVs in the oh maybe unless, it's like maybe early mid two, early mid two thousands you know like, okay. I, I can't imagine... Well, the time frame doesn't really seem to affect it all that much. They seem to be able to... The cars they've got are relatively old-looking, but they also... Well, there's no mobile phones, which actually would have changed quite a bit of the narrative if there was sort of mm. a telecommunication side to it. That's um, true, yeah. You, know, you you got Marin sort of going through this old map, and it's sort of meant to show her sort of um, agitated state, the way she sort of frantically pulls out this map, the fact that there is no other way for her to track between the states and where she is so that i think it is important to the story that it's not like modern modern day but i couldn't quite put my finger on it It might be 90s or or you're right mid 2000s at the absolute latest um 1980s virginia it was 80s maybe okay that's interesting because if she said she's 18 and it's like she could be lying she could not be it doesn't really matter late 80s if she was born in 70. Well, if that was her own birth certificate, then it would have been 1988. Yeah. But I thought it was her mum's. Anyway, whatever. Semantics. Yeah. Zeke, what do you think about the film just in general? Your immediate takeaway. Um, Weird. <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly, you know, we, we obviously, like you said, in the first half of the show, it was just you and I in the cinema. And mm. I think it was a weird film that was alleviated by you i think very quickly identifying what cannibalism is a substitute for um right i do well, believe my, i don't know if it's accurate or not but i sort of spent the whole film thinking this feels like a wider and not not that there aren't cannibals out there in the world but i think the film does take it to that almost vampire-esque extreme where you brought up twilight Mm-hmm. And I, I don't even think that's a bad comparison because I'm watching this film with sort of that deliberate pacing. This feels kind of like a, a Stephanie Meyer novel almost or a fanfic of it. Well, the fact that people can smell each other exactly. and they have the, yeah. the ability to identify each other without any form of... Uh, yeah, like it's just, surreal. It's, it's surreal it's, in that sense. Yeah. And, and the the normality of it, the normalization that these ones that do identify, they're not like freaked out or worried it's the ritualistic killing of mm. the 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 fact that they're these unspoken rules yeah yeah or ev- that everyone and they they call themselves like you know you're one of us like they to very in terms of their own labeling system they're very much separate from normal people quote unquote 
you know, they're on the edges of margins of society, as the logline says. So there's that surreal aspect in the fact that they isolate themselves from other people that yep. I think an analog for, you know, for cannibalism is appropriate, and I thought it was addiction. Yeah, it's, it's definitely, like, hard drug addiction, mm. it feels like, this... Um, and, you know, at the time, like, in, in the 80s, uh, like, there were quite... There was quite paranoia around drug use and mm. and sort of the the perspective, yeah, definitely of this sort of drifting lifestyle and moving from place to place and basically burning all your bridges, your the 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 historical family historic family history that motivates those mm. sort of actions, you know. When we start to explore the the story of Lee, like Lee's backstory from his home and sort of the abuse he suffered, the fact that um, families, like Marin's family, like her father's trying to hide this um, this addiction, this this weird urge that she has to, like, mm. eat humans from everyone and, and, and basically gets to a point where he burns out and, and quits on her yeah. because he sort of has no hope left for her. Yeah. Um. I mean, uh, so much of the film is about that in terms of, you know, people who are sort of within this group of cannibals, people outside, and, and treating it as an addiction of whether it's something that could be overcome or something to learn to live with or something that is so unbearable that we see multiple characters debate suicide and debate whether it's even worth trying to live like this. And you got Lee, for example, who, you're right, he kind of is almost like the, the guideline of those unwritten rules who has that confidence and you know this is just the way it is and and but it's also an unspoken thing that he only selects people that he can himself rationalize as assholes you got like the guy who runs that which i think actually is david gordon oh sorry no david gordon greens the is jake's friend uh they meet that's one of the first mm. like couples the groupie meet. the groupie ex- yeah exactly the groupie <laughs> yeah. but then there's that carnival guy as well who he kind of it's not, It's pretty tame, the things he says to the kid who, like, loses the game beforehand. It's pretty tame, but it's like, that is it's such a very easy thing you can rationalize. Of, okay, I'm going to eat this person. Now I'm going to trick him into this relationship. And so it's interesting to see all these different characters. And that's where the Into the Wild comparison comes for me. Is this idea of someone going on this journey, embarking on the outskirts of society, and meeting all these different people mm. that present life lessons or, or ways to live with this thing. And I think Easy Rider has a very similar... In terms of the the cross country American road trip, even the you know you got the Jack Nicholson campfire esque scene mm. that's sort of in there as well. Um, obviously, there's slight differences. <laughs> yes, <laughs> the eating and the whatnot, but um, and then that that's where my last comparison of uh, let the right one in, which is fantastic, and the the American version as well. Um, let me in is pretty darn good as well from memory. Like I said, this feels like an amalgamation of all those different films. I don't know if it achieves any of those respective films' goals as well, anywhere near as well as those mm. films do. Because I know, Zizi, I know you were kind of struggling with finding what the overall theme is. Do you feel like you figured that out, or I think it's not- just it probably has the Into the Wild sort of themes of just learning to explore and grow within the world and accept your, your own personal differences and mm. but find that that happiness in in yourself and in others is, is definitely there yeah um 
the the torment and troubles that those who have addiction, how they cope with it, how they work through the world, how mm. they sort of exist around us, um, just trying to get by. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like the, the film itself was sort of deliberately vague mm. um, in the hopes of being, I feel, more poignant than what it actually was. Okay. Um, Which, yeah, I will say, there's nothing wrong with a film being sort of thematically vague. And you're right, it can it could work, it can not work. But I kind of agree with you in that I for a film that's two hours and ten minutes, and I, I didn't have a problem with the pacing. Again, it felt very novelistic. It was like, mm-hmm. oh, it could end now. Oh, there's another scene. Oh, it could end now. Oh, there's a couple more scenes. It did have that effect. But otherwise, I didn't have a problem with the pacing. But it felt like for that length of time, I got very little out of it in terms yeah. of the themes. And even sort of the end note, I don't want to jump into spoilers immediately, but it has a pretty downer ending. Yeah. To the point where I'm like, I don't know what, other than just to feel miserable, like, which is a that, perfectly fine theme, I guess. But this sort of way of life will always lead to loneliness and, and tragedy. Is that the... I suppose, yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, we might as well just talk about that, get into spoilers. Oh, well, I mean... Yeah, we talk. We talked a little bit about Rylance's character, who sort of introduces mm. Mara into this this world that she thought she had just existed in herself by by herself. Yeah. Um, Even the idea of like smelling and finding people through smell, and like he introduces that to her. She doesn't mm. even know that's a thing. Yeah, and the superpower within her. You know, they, they share a meal together, and um, <laughs> in a very uh, an animalistic sense too. Yeah. It, it almost feels like. Uh, two people, uh, two animals devouring a, a corpse, two yeah. hyenas, mm. um, with little emotion. And Sully's a bit weird and estranged and is sort of the result of someone who lives this sort of life in complete solitude. Mm. Um, and is the only character that actually, you know, obviously after Lee and Marin get together, they meet another two uh, people with the like, but they're together. They're they're, they're still together as, right. as friends and stuff. And I I think that that's definitely a, an importance because Sully becomes uh, obsessed with Marin and and that, yeah. that sort of f- uh, friendship they develop um, over that one night and to the point where yeah he he breaks breaks and he goes full stalker syndrome. <laughs> Um, travel multiple states to find it and and kills and obviously kills Lee Lee Chalamet and well, Chalamet's Lee um and she he just says eat eat me um which I'm not <laughs> really sure why um yeah I think I think that comes into the the inner you know like like we talked about fire of love was like there's a lot of aspects to it but at its core it's a love story and I think this is definitely you know at its core a love story and in regards to all those characters you meet, I think Sully's definitely the polar opposite in terms of he's the one that he's obviously a lot older than Marin. You know, he's probably spent an entire life of loneliness, much like Marin would have if she did not go on the journey of this film. She may have grown to be an, an old, lonely woman. And the polar opposite of that is to find love, like, you know, she does with Lee. And, I mean, that's a love story that you know, there's a whole arc there with Lee sort of breaking down his emotional barrier where he finally opens up about you know, him and his dad and how that relationship ended. I'm being very coy with my wording mm. <laughs> there about how the relationship ended. 
but you know breaking down his barriers and that's what I that's why the ending being so dow and and or dire rather such a downer ending is because it felt like it was leading to this this arc of okay here are two people that feel like on the outskirts of society and who have this addiction that they can just cannot get over but as long as they're together and are empathetic to each other mm. they can live a life worth living and that's why the film is like almost hilariously domestic in that last scene where it's like she's like going to movies and it's like it's like the you know the 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 perfect dream like euphoria scene where you know she's she wakes up in her underwear and he's on the phone cooking a meal and they're both like kind of lovey-dovey in the morning and it's a very domesticated representation mm. of what that love life would be almost dreamlike to that sense so it kind of sets it up as this is the kind of life you can live if you find somebody else, even if they indulge in the same addictions, they can talk to each other and they can empathize with each other and be there for each other. Mm -hmm. But then he just dies anyway. And she's alone again at the end. And that's why it's like, it's there, but then it's so easily taken away from you Mm. for something that's not, I guess you could argue that Marion, and I'm just kind of thinking out loud at this point, I guess because Marion does reject Sully at that point, he angrily drives off. But also, yes. I think most anyone in that situation, I think that would be the right thing to do, is this creepy old man's following you, tell him to go away. I mean, that's weird that the film is sort of suggesting that that's the reason why she had to lose the yeah. love of her life. I Interesting. Think, I, I, th- I th- Maybe, you know, it's if it is a romance story, then you've got to be compelled by the romance okay. aspect. And I, I really and struggled. Weren't. I just okay. struggled. I just didn't think that it just felt like two characters were existing and then they I guess that they grew an affirmation for each other mm. and then it I don't know it just felt not quite the same it didn't feel like the rapport was there it was almost because the subject I think the subject matter is so is very hard to mm. find compelling or it's like compelling or even it's not the same charm as something like a vampire drama and because um, that's played more, you know, child-friendly or, or kiddly. Yeah. Where it doesn't hone in on the violence so much. Yeah, whereas this doesn't shy away... Well, it does shy away, I think, a fair bit. I mean, we don't see a lot of cannibal-driven scenes. There are a few... Um, it could have been way more gory. If Sure. I mean, there were a couple of scenes visceral. when I was sort of wincing or yeah. looking away, you know, so when you get a close-up of the biting... I mean, the very first one, when she bites the finger off, yeah, like that the camera one's... just like lingers on that image. It's gross, and it's shocking because I don't think either of us knew what was we were it was coming from walking into. Yeah. And I think that was one of the authentic, the great authentic surprises for the year for me was watching this film. No, I I had heard the joke about Army Hammer and yada yada yada, but I didn't associate it with this film because we saw the trailer, mm-hmm. and from memory, the trailer didn't imply any sort of. It was just a, a story about two drifters. Yeah. So it was a nice, authentic surprise to watch this film get five, ten minutes in, being like, like I, I know, where's Timothy Chalamet? Who's this girl? What's going on? And then that being an authentic surprise of like, oh my God, that she's she ate her finger off. What's going on? And oh my God, the father's like aware and they've got this plan to get out within ten minutes. And I like all of that stuff unfolding. But yeah, I'd, I'm with you in the sense that I thought the relationship was okay. I wasn't overly invested. You know, it's not once, mm. <laughs> for example. No, it's not. Or it's not her. You know, and and her's another one of those. Like, mm. how do you get a relationship between a man and a phone over the line? Right. You know? And how do you believe work, it? Yeah. 
So it's just, and that's just as odd. Like that's to me, that's just as odd as okay. Two people eating people, like. Well, so, that, that's where the analogy comes in. If you look at it as like two drug users coming together, it's like that. That makes that feels way more natural. Yeah. So I think that's when the yeah the analog comes in. For sure, for sure. Um, and I I think it was maybe it was just like though that there were those shock moments like that first reveal after yep. the cat's out of the bag. Mm. You know, like the Rylance scene. It's interesting because it's like. The uneasiness doesn't come from the fact they're eating someone. It comes from Rylance's kind of creepy demeanor. Mm. Um, and then it becomes very obvious, especially after their interaction. It's like, oh, we're going to see him in the last 10 minutes of the film, aren't we? Like, cause, so that was what made that domestication, like you said, almost dreamlike at times. And the fact that uh, the final shots of the film are just the empty rooms. Right. Like, um, Which calls out to the, the, the editing in this film is a little bizarre. Yes. I mean, it goes the, to the, the age old Yeah, if, age old rule. If you notice the editing, it's probably bad editing. Yeah, you're not meant yeah. to notice it. But he, he did stuff like this in, in Call Me By Your Name, like the, the cutting to inanimate objects. Not even so much that. I, I'm just talking about like the cut, cut, cut. Like those like jarring cuts that don't feel very rhythmic at all. And sometimes it is just random landmarks. Sometimes it is reinforcing like Marin's... Um, like anxiety because mm. she has that and her performance is great because she's got every now and then she's got kind of like that that shiver that's going on which serves mm. that analog there's great like choices within the performances i wouldn't go out and say these are the greatest performances i've ever seen but this is those choices you look at again rylance where like he's got like that stutter um and just that interesting line delivery like mm. there's a lot of great beats there um but I just found the editing to be mostly jarring and odd, and I don't. It's been a while since I've seen "Call Me by Your Name," but I don't mind that, like cutting to an inanimate object or cutting to a different scene, almost like cross-cutting between mm. two emotional beats. But it was just literally the like cut, 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 and it's like almost the same angle but on a different lens. That it yeah. just felt too jarring for me every now and then. And "Call Me by Your Name" is is very beautiful cinematography. Mm. Um, it has some amazing shots and some really wide shots whereas this because yep. uh, a vast majority of the plot actually takes place in cars mm. um i think we're driving around these sort of em- empty vistas and deserts mm. and- yeah but i don't think we really get a lot of the really beautiful cinematography until the, the third act when they they get up to nebraska and you get those really nice wide shots because mm. for the most part they're actually just sort of sitting in the car driving in the car yep Sitting in a diner, and then it's rinse and repeat. Yeah, I, I admit, especially compared to Call Me Away, I thought that film was like very beautiful looking mm. in the way it. Though that's when I figured the editing in that film, I figured that just really long takes mm. of the camera like dollying back and forth between a fountain and like the blocking of the two of them going back and forth. That's what I remember from that film. And when I look at something like this, like I think you're right. It's not only that jarring editing, but the there's some great shots and great visuals, and I do appreciate it that there was. They cut quite a lot to POV shots where they're either looking at each other's faces or she's looking down reading a mm. note or you go inside the the bag when Rylance is getting choked. Like, there's a lot of POV shots, enough for it to feel like a like mm. a, a consistent style that he's doing. Absolutely. But otherwise, I yeah, I I don't think I'll be remembering a lot of the shots from this film, for example. It's not meant to be as beautiful though. Call Me By Name is meant to look beautiful. This is mm. meant to look a lot more grittier and darker 
there's always kind of like a dusk setting. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think in all fairness, it's it's affecting that style. It's kind of like we talked about The Stranger a bit, where the, yeah. the style of the cinematography has to serve the, the tone and the aesthetic. So I think it achieves that sense. The other thing I'd like to ask you about, I mean, we were sort of laughing... It obviously uh, a lot of the legends that come up are just the state abbreviations for yes. the US. Now, I as much as we were joking, like we we're trying to figure out which states which. I mean, we're not Americans, so we don't know them all. We don't. My head. We don't. There are so many, you know, A's and M's <laughs> that we don't remember all of on top of our head. Yep. But I do kind of like that because it is very much an, an American road trip film. Mm-hmm. So I like that they're using those abbreviations as almost like you you have that extra context as an American and or someone who's memorized the geography of the place in all these different states. Um, so I appreciated that it almost wasn't made for me that, you know, we had to look up a couple of like, Oh, is this Nebraska? Yeah, this is Nebraska. Yeah. 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 It didn't bother me. It's a road trip. And you, you, like it could be anything. Can you just go, Oh, it's a different state. Like I don't really need to know the state. Yeah. Um, but that's why I think it ties back to that. Was it a thousand miles? Was that the log line? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's where it ties back to is maybe they were keeping track of every state they visited and how many times they backtracked, maybe to count up the miles. Yeah. And I think that might have something to do with it. But I, I appreciated Work. that a big part of the film was the geography of it and these characters sort of knowing where to go. I mean, the thing we haven't even talked about, we've talked about sort of the wider themes and ideas of, of these characters finding each other and, and, I guess, identity and all of these things. We haven't talked about the actual plot, which is... Marin finding her mother, which I think definitely, you know, aids to that overall theme of identity mm. of wanting to know where you came from and, and your mother. And I think she eventually finds her grandmother, who basically tells her where to go to find the mum. I found this all to be a bit like it felt very secondary, which it is. Mm. You know, the plot secondary to the the character of this story, but even just the way she kind of goes up to her. I think her name's Barbara. Barbara Kearns, which reminded me of it's Kearns, stupid, from The Simpsons. Gotta do it. But then she finds her, and then she's very much like, oh, she's not with us anymore. Oh, I'm just kidding. She is. She's like, okay. And then the next scene, they find her mum. Yeah. And I, Which I think in and itself is a great scene. We see she's missing her arms, and that's another response to dealing with you know, another character and how they deal with this, which is just to remove themselves completely to the point where they're eating themselves is the only option they have. I thought that it's in itself is interesting, but it also just kind of felt like this beat, this beat, this beat. Okay, we're done with this part of the story. Back to our teen romance. Yeah, which it just felt a bit... I don't want to use the word clunky, but I, that's kind of the best yeah, way to describe it's it. clearly showing the, uh, the intergenerational trauma that can be sustained through elongated drug use that mm. maybe because of... Well, because her mum was like that. Yep. She's inherited that mm. um and so it's not even her urges aren't even her own fault right um and that, just deal, yeah dealing with that and wanting to find answers from that parent and not only not finding answers but almost getting eaten mm. <laughs> i just i thought in terms of the way it was plotted out especially because at that point you were saying you were kind of making jokes about okay where do we go from here what's the rest of the story and I, in my mind, I was like, okay, well, I'm, I'm, they're obviously going to have a little breakup, these two. Yeah. And then they're going to have to come back together before the film ends. Like, that's the only way I could rationalize the free act structure. 
So it does, it almost would have been smarter to maybe have spread that out where maybe she meets Barbara. She tells her like, oh, she's not with us anymore. And then that culminates into an argument with uh, with Lee that ultimately makes him split up. Mm-hmm. And then that way, the lingering question of the mother and that journey is still in play after they've split up. I I mean, I don't know. That To me, that felt like that would have been a good way to keep the momentum going instead of being like, oh, now this storyline's done. Yeah. We still have half an hour of the film left. I don't know. No, I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair enough. Just don't make a two-hour, ten-minute film. (laughs) (laughs) Just cut 15 out. Yeah. The only thing I'll uh, ask before I guess we get into highlight scenes Mm -hmm. is I want to talk a bit about the music. So the music... I really struggled to remember the music from it. It's very, um, like, simplistic. It's a lot of, like plucking strings on an acoustic guitar. Now, the, the music was actually done by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, who did the Social Network soundtrack, mm. which might be one of my favorite soundtracks <clears throat> of all time. So, high hopes. Yeah, well, look, I, I, I actually quite liked it. There were definitely, I mean, we joked about the diegetic, non-diegetic use of this music playing when she's listening to her father's tapes, and then we sort of joke because the music cuts as soon as she takes <laughs> off. There, It's like, oh, maybe the dad had that in the background. He's just there mixing... <laughs> Live mixing while he's talking to the mic. Exactly. Which, no, we joked, but that is authentically an interesting way to mix, like, you what you would otherwise use to edit diegetic music, mm-hmm. but use it for non-diegetic music. Yeah. That's quite interesting. And the music itself, it was kind of, like, eerie, and it almost, again, it was kind of leaned towards that string snapping effect we see in some horror mm. films. Um, I mean, the, the soundtrack reminds me a lot of The Last of Us, which is another American road trip story. You trailer looks incredible, by the way. That comes out next month on HBO. Very exciting. Little teaser. Little teaser. I'm very excited. I feel like it's going to be like a weekly update from Jake when that comes out <laughs> on every episode. It's going to be good. But I, I, it just, it was interesting that 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 kind of feels like between those two and other road trip films that that is almost like the the sound of the open American outback mm. is just these very quiet acoustic guitar strings. Um, I I liked it. Because yeah. I, I was trying to sort of pay more attention to it while watching. And I was I do like this. I think it works and affects the story. Beautiful. Well, Jake, what was your highlight scene? Um, I'll have to say, like I said, I did kind of like the scene with the mum reveal, even though I don't think it was structured into the narrative all mm. the well. It's probably a, a, a case of the novel written by uh, Camille D'Angelo's. Uh, it might have been a case of just following that novel to a T structurally. But I will probably say my highlight scene was literally the opening. That feeling we described of not knowing where the story's going. Oh, it's a teenage girl. She's sneaking out, trying to figure out the time period. And just the actual shock of... of It's all part of one giant shot when she leans over and... Oh, is this going to be like a love story between them? Yeah, oh, she, like she leans yeah, over to yeah. like kiss, yeah. Just complete... For people like us who went in pretty blind, just completely threw us off. And, and it was a, a great feeling. Yeah, and it's a good sort of, even like self-awareness and continuity with obviously mm. Guadagnino. You're like obviously doing a film about a homosexual couple in his last film. It yeah, was, yeah. It was probably a little bit like, oh, are we going that route a second time? And yeah. It was obviously <laughs> well, easing easy away. Film, I'd say. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think uh, he did Suspiria though. I was shocked that that was him who directed that because I still haven't seen it. Was that before? Or after? That, I think it was 2018. I think it was okay. just after. Um, but I feel like you're right. Like definitely, people look at Call Me by, and especially with Timothy Chalamet. Yeah, I mean that's definitely the comparison. People. So I think you're absolutely bang on there in terms of, oh, are they going to go the same route? Oh, not necessarily. No, 
And then I love it. The title literally comes up after that bones and all. It's like, ah, it's that, <laughs> that's that feeling. What about you? What's your what's your highlight? Um, I'd say the intro, the introduction to Rylance was pretty good. Um, it's mm, creepy. Like on the street. Yeah, the the, he, the way that he stands at the end of the street and slowly walks up like he's a midnight strangler. It's got his demeanor's <laughs> very creepy and yeah. He's whole... got that feather in his hat. His costume is excellent, by the way. Yeah, very creepy. It's just a weird amalgamation of of his history. I guess it's yeah. Yeah, probably that that whole sequence. That was a very awkward interaction. It, um, you know, in contrast to our introduction with Chalamet later in the film with Lee, who's sort of stands mm. up for Marin and Yeah, and even the way that shot where he's just kind of in the shot. Like if you didn't know who Timothy Chalamet was, you wouldn't know that that was the other protagonist of the film. Mm. It's very casual how he's introduced through the camera work. Yeah. And he goes and numbs on that dude. Num 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 num. num, num, num. num, num, num. Bows is currently out in cinemas near you. Speaking of cinemas, Jake, what's new to cinemas and streaming platforms this week? Oh, it's a fun week, Zeke. Get into that Christmas spirit. Yes. We got two adaptations of Pinocchio coming to streaming. Not one, but two. No, we got Pinocchio: A True Story, which looks pretty bad. I'm not going to lie. Coming to binge this week, and you got a less bad looking Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio coming to Netflix. Be, I reckon that'll be pretty good. I'm hearing it's like amazing. People are saying it's like the best adaptation by far of Pinocchio. Because you know, it's just it's you know we did Pan's Labyrinth earlier in the year. Yep. Um... So we Nightmare know, Alley we as know, well, yeah. and Nightmare Alley. So we know this man is very capable of the, the, the supernatural and the fantasy. Is this his first stop motion film? I reckon it might be. Yeah, which is I'm, a bit of a surprise. I think it is. Well, yeah, we did his director's corner. We would have known if he had. <laughs> but then again, he does all sorts of. He's doing like the cabin and a mysteries thing on Netflix, and mm. so he he's around the block. He does all sorts of things. But I'm excited to see it. That was playing in cinemas. In fact, I still think it is I mean, playing he did in cinemas. Pacific this Rim. Week. Oh, that's true. I still haven't seen it. Never seen Pacific Rim. Uh, also, coming to Netflix, you got uh, an animated series drop for Dragon Age Absolution. Have you ever watched any of the Dragon Age shows? Or Never even played the games. No. Okay, fair enough. Neither, neither. It's... They look cool. Yeah, I thought that would be up your alley, but it just kind of... I know, it was it Dragon Age... Was it Ret- not Retribution? There was one that came out in like that 2014 era that I just wasn't into it at that point. Mm-hmm. It is what it is. You've also got Money Heist Korea Joint Economic Area Part 2. There's a lot of Money Heist out there. I know we have friends of the show that love those shows. Coming to stand, you've got Don't Breathe, Train Spotting 2, or T2, if you like to call it. T2. And The Social Network. Nice little bunch right there. You've got David O. Russell's Amsterdam coming to Disney+. Plus. I might check this out. I was sort of like, oh, I wouldn't mind seeing it, but if it's on streaming, then there you go. You got me. Got me in a twist. Coming to Apple TV Plus, you got Emancipation. It's a very ironic title for the film. Will Smith is a slave that flees a plantation in Louisiana and outwits cold-blooded hunters and unforgiving swamps in a torturous journey. That just sounds like his post-Oscars campaign after slap, after the slap. <laughs> Does actually? Oh God! Good luck gotta, to him. I you gotta, guess you got to take your name, take her name out of your mouth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god i i say good luck to him somewhat ironically i mean i my instant reaction when i heard and it was like this was the first oscar in oscars in years i didn't sit down to watch so it was yeah. one of those like oh wow a couple i was at work and then now Mao, mal's like he's watching on his phone so i'm hearing i'm like what on god's name is that 
But um, look, I say good luck in, in the sense that like, hey, if you manage to win back that public perception, great. But I could not give two shits about this film. No. And I mean, I probably wouldn't have anyway. But now I kind of have this extra. Well, he's thing not up. allowed to go anymore, is he? No. So even even if he gets nominated, he, he won't be allowed to accept the award, which is fair enough. Get Chris Rock to go up there and accept it for him. <laughs> Look, like I said, my gut reaction to that was like, "Oh, good on him. He's protecting his woman." But the more I thought about it, it's like, you just can't do that. Live television for millions of people. You are setting a yeah. present regardless of, of your status. Well, we talked about it on the show when it happened. Yes. My my bare bones has always been stand-up comedians hit and miss sometimes, and sometimes sure. they go over the line. But their job is to... To try to To, to find where the that. line is. Exactly. And navigate sometimes they fail. And the way that you meet that is, you know, on social media you can say that's really inappropriate, that was really poor form... Ask him to apologize. And if you're in the live audience, you just don't laugh. You groan. Yeah. You make yeah. noise, negative noises that met, like let the comedian know, oh, that was a bad joke. Yeah. Because that's how you do it. That's how it's always been done. Yeah. There's nothing more uncomfortable for a stand-up comedian in that sort of situation than silence or groans. And what's so horrible about it, and this is the... This is the the adverse effect. I don't think Will Smith thought of it at all. I mean, he was obviously like in a mode of seeing red, but the fact that there were other comedians almost immediately after it happened that had to protect themselves from people trying to do the same thing. That people think they now have a right to assault comedians. Yeah. Anyway, we don't need to get into it again, but we did the, uh, whatever, whatever film we did prior to Coda. Yeah. Cause we did not expect Coda to win at all. Nope. Um, so whatever episode we did before that might've actually been nightmare alley. Might have been, yeah. That would, that would be pretty funny if that if that was our tie-in. I like it. Um, but anyway, coming to cinemas, you got White Noise. I'm excited about this, Zeke. Latest film from Noah Baumbach. Yeah. This is this just snuck right in. Yeah. I, just, I, I only heard about this a couple of days ago. I was like, oh, God, he has a new film. Just out of nowhere. Incredible. And I think Adam Driver's in it. Greta, Greta Gerwig's in it. Um, I don't have the cast up on me. I should have. But there's some great, there's some great people mm. in there. Um, you have a college professor, Jake Glanley, I believe he's played by Adam Driver, and his family's comfortable suburban life upended when a nearby chemical leak causes an evacuation. It sounds a bit more dramatic than his other films. Yeah. So, we shall see. We shall see. Yeah. Would I go to the cinema and watch this seat? I would sure love to. Yeah. But, again, how many films have I seen last week? That's it. Yeah. <laughs> Film of the week. Uh, the Road Dance sees a young girl in the outer Herbrides, Herbrides or Hebrides, in a small village just years before World War One, face a dramatic change after a terrible tragedy befalls her. I'm sick of these vague. They're very so. vague. Tragedy, a dramatic change. Just tell me what happens. <laughs> I don't spoil the movie, but but also tell me what happens. Um, Salvatore Shoemaker of Dreams is a documentary covering the life of the Italian shoemaker and is in fact directed by Luca by Luca Guadagnino there you go (laughs) there you go full circle look at us go Uh, Eno the Maestro is another documentary this one paying tribute to the legendary composer Eno Morricone also at Hoyt's this week this weekend they're previewing a bunch of films including the animated musical Lyle Lyle Crocodile uh, Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. Uh, I can't believe that's still a thing. Puss, oh, no. Puss in Boots movies. And The Banshees of Inishirin, which I think is very quickly approaching its wide release. So maybe yeah. this is my chance to watch it. A lot of lot of praise. For oh, I'm so keen for this film. 
so keen. Uh, and finally, uh, Mr. Organ sees director and journalist David Ferrer embark on a game of cat and mouse with a mysterious stranger, leading to a discovery of court cases, royal connections, and ruined lives. It sounds very Tickled-esque, doesn't it? Oof, I did love Tickled. Oh, Tickled's great. Now, what's cool about this as well is you can actually attend a Q&A screening at Lunar Leader with the man himself, the director, the journalist, the legend, this Sunday the 11th. So Very exciting. That is cool. What time's that on? Oh, God. I, uh, Sorry, I will check you, it after you, the you show. You got me. Uh, probably a... Uh, a 6 p.m. I'm guessing 6, 7 p.m. I doubt they would have directors coming at 2 a.m. Uh, 2, 2 p.m. Well, then, I'm trying to think of examples of what they have. I think they have, actually. Mm. Because um, I know, like, Bass and Dream, I think they have the director attend, like, day daytime screenings. It's a Q&A, though, so... Yeah? Yeah. I'm so, I'm sorry, audience. All I got for you is the date and time. Or the, the day and time. Uh, day and location. I'm, I want to instinctually, instinctually say times it, <laughs> but I just don't have it. I don't have time. Okay? Back off. Sorry, buddy. That's okay. Didn't mean to ask all the hard pressed <laughs> questions. You're like, I didn't mean to open this can of worms. Yeah. <laughs> I was not prepared for a follow up. We should go to that QA and, and ask a question and be like, Jake Diagrella, uh, Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I have a question for you. Cinema Sideshow, see? I got the hat and the, the camera. Yeah, the press. The press. That's <laughs> <laughs> I should do that instead of aside and ask like the most boring question like what led you to want to make this film yeah so that's a scoop yeah yeah old camera old timey camera oh my god I can't speak today so we gotta just let's end the podcast yeah sorry I can't speak I gotta extend it sorry well we're not catching any of those next week on the show but Jake what are we watching next week on the show Zeke we're watching struts struts I think it's stuts 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 What's up, Stats? Hi, Jonah. Okay, entertain me. <laughs> I'm just going to start by acknowledging how odd this endeavor is. A patient making a movie about his therapist. But my life has gotten immeasurably better as a result of working with you. If it worked for me, maybe it will work for other people. In candid conversations with actor Jonah Hill, leading psychiatrist Phil Stutz explores his early life experiences and unique visual model of therapy. Stutz. Stutz. I'm going to strut my stuff. That's it. It's neither of those. Well, <laughs> looks like a very Bo Burnham-esque documentary. Yes, it's Jonah very Hill. He's reflexive. directing, uh, I guess, In It. And that's all I know. I haven't seen the trailer or anything, but I know, yeah, it's a sort of a... A, a one-on-one interview. Don't know how much of it's going to have, like, archival footage, or yeah. are we going to leave the therapy room? You know, we'll find out, I guess, next no week. Well, until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Side Show podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. We'll catch you next week with Stats. Stuff. <laughs>